Side Hustle Show 329, Get Better Without Getting Bigger. How to work smarter to build a side hustle to build a business that supports your lifestyle. What's up? What's up, Nick? Loper here. Welcome to the Side Hustle Show because the journey is the destination. And we're living that journey every day. So we want to make sure we're excited about it, both where we're going and the steps along the way. Today, I'm joined by Paul Jarvis from pjrvs.com. He's a talented writer and designer who's made a living and a name for himself by often taking the counterpoint to the conventional wisdom, especially when it comes to entrepreneurship and business growth. His latest book, Company of One, caught my attention. It's about why building a better business doesn't necessarily mean building a bigger business. Stick around in this episode to hear the decision-making frameworks you can use in your own business and how Paul's intentionally set up his own operation to maximize time leverage and freedom. A little bit more of a philosophical episode than what we're used to, but it was definitely a thought-provoking conversation for me, and I think you'll enjoy it as well. Notes and links for this one, along with the full text summary, are at sidehustlenation.com slash pjrvs. We'll match that up with his domain name. And one of the things I asked Paul was, what's the difference between a freelancer and a company of one? And the answer was in the mentality of the business owner. To what extent do they treat it like a business by putting in place the systems and procedures to make it run smoothly? Now, 24 million people, myself included, are using our sponsor, FreshBooks.com, to step into that business owner mode and save time and headache on our bookkeeping and accounting. FreshBooks is the number one invoicing and accounting software designed specifically for side hustlers, freelancers, and consultants. Side Hustle Show listeners can try it free for 30 days. There's no catch and no credit card required. Go to FreshBooks.com slash side hustle and enter the Side Hustle Show in the How Did You Hear About Us section to get started today. I'll be back with my top takeaways from this chat with Paul after the interview. Ready? Let's do it. The byproduct of success isn't growth, which I know a lot of people say it is, but I don't think it is. I think the byproduct of success is the freedom to choose whether or not growth makes sense. And in, in that case, what growth makes sense and what growth doesn't. Yeah, absolutely. The success is the freedom to choose. Absolutely. Success is freedom over your own calendar in, in a lot of cases. I think there's two segments of the population. There's the overly optimistic, what if this succeeds? Not even what if this succeeds, like when is it going to succeed? How big is it going to be? But there's, I think the vast majority of people are more stuck on that negative. What happens if this fails? Like how much is that going to hurt? That's going to suck. But like you said, you move on, you do the next thing. What if this succeeds? And so it sounds like that's kind of what you're advocating is planning from the early days to plan for that success and put in the business systems and processes in place to almost ensure that it does or is there more to it? Yeah, I think there's I think there's more to it. So obviously putting in place things to to help it succeed very important. Like we we need those things. But I think it's a, it's also a matter of figuring out like well okay, what does success look like? Like how will I gauge success or not with this? Or how will I gauge whether or not I want to continue? And how will I gauge what things I say yes to and what things I say no to? Because I think a lot of times we get so excited. If something's going well, we just get so excited. Like, <laughs> this thing is awesome. And then, and then we're presented with opportunities, right? And I think when we're presented with opportunities, I think every opportunity has an obligation or a maintenance cost associated. And sometimes we're just so excited by the fact like, 
this thing I made is working, that we're just like, yes, it's just blanket, yes. Everything that comes up, yes. And I think that that can put us in a bad place potentially because we can say yes to things that may not serve us. We can say yes to things that we don't want. And I think it's important, like you said, from the onset to kind of think about that. For example, I've shut down businesses that were profitable that were just going in a direction that I didn't want to go. And that to me felt like the best decision, even though on the outside, if you just looked at money, it'd be like, well, you're, you were dumb. <laughs> you shut down something that was profitable. What's your problem, Mr. Anti-Capitalist? <laughs> well, well, let's talk through that for a second, because that's a question that comes up. Not necessarily always to shut down a leg or an arm of the business that's still profitable, but has this carrying cost, this obligation that you talked about. But in the early days of any sort of side hustle, like maybe I'm seeing a little bit of traction, maybe there's this light at the end of the tunnel. And you've probably seen the meme of like, you know, the guy mining for gold and he turns around like just before he strikes it rich. How do you know when to quit and like the the definition of insanity is continuing to do the same thing and expecting different results how do you know when to quit versus like how do you know oh if i if i had just gone for another month it would have been the greatest thing yeah so i think that the first thing to that is that i would never want to take a risk that could harm me irreparably i would never take out a second mortgage on my house to start a business or I would never put like anybody in danger or something like that to start. I don't know what situation it would be where I'm putting somebody in like physical harm to start a business, but I would never basically gamble with my family's finances at a considerable amount to start something. I would, I would rather start, okay, how can I start this in the smallest way possible with the least amount of capital required and, and build it from there? Whether or not this succeeds or fails is as worth it at the time. And I mean, it's, very Eastern philosophy is from the Bhagavad Gita. But I think then there's a, a sentence in there that's like, we're entitled to the labor, not the fruits of our labor. And that doesn't mean that I don't wake up and like rainbows shoot out of my fingertips every day. And I'm just so excited to do every single bit of my work. Sometimes I'm stressed out. Sometimes I'm angry at the work I have to do. And sometimes it's not fun. But on average, I would rather be enjoying the work and feel like I'm doing something that's worth doing. And I mean, if it's not profitable for a spell, that's kind of how business works a little bit. (laughs) Well, have you had a situation where it's like not profitable for an extended period and you're like, I still really like doing this, so I'm going to keep at it? No, I wouldn't do that. That's the definition of a hobby for me, doing something that's not profitable, but you enjoy it. I have lots of hobbies that I love. I played music for a long time, which is a very expensive hobby. And it, it did turn into a job and then I ended up hating it. But I think that a business definitely, first thing, it has to generate income. And if you're working for yourself, it needs to be profitable in the business, but it also needs to, if it's the thing you do, then it needs to be profitable enough to give you a comfortable life. And if it's not doing that, then things definitely need to change. Yeah, my answer has historically been when I come to dread the work, that means it's time to shut down that project or or make some significant change. But I like that. We're entitled to the labor, not the fruits of our labor. goes along with kind of a different, a little bit of a shift in mindset this year on setting more process-oriented goals instead of outcome goals. It's like, I'm going to control the controllable and hopefully the outcome is positive, but I'm going to focus on the process part, like what I can actually do. (laughs) Hopefully the fruits uh, show up at the end. What's driving business for you these days? 
Right now it is, and I feel like I have a diversified portfolio, which I tell myself is smart because that's how my investments work. (laughs) But I also know that I look at people who do one thing for a living or have one focus, even if they work for themselves, if they do one thing, I'm like, oh, that seems so, like, that seems so smart and so wise and so manageable. But then like, Anytime that I've done that, I've quickly taken on more things because I think I like having diversity. So in order of revenue generated for me right now, it goes courses. I teach two online courses, books because I have a traditional publishing deal, software, and then podcasting. I think those are all the streams. <laughs> it's bad when you have to think about the work that you do and try to remember it all, but those are the things that I do right now. Yeah, you've got a lot of stuff going on. Are you doing any direct client work anymore? No, I stopped doing that probably about six years ago. But it took me three years to quit doing that because I really <laughs> I really liked it. And it was good money. So I was like, oh, I don't really want to quit. And then just the products that I was working on took off and I was like, I have to like I can't I'm doing clients a disservice if I continue, so I had to stop. Okay, fair enough. Well, that, there's an example of like, here's something that is profitable, that you enjoy doing, and still decided to shut it down. Yeah, I, I basically gave myself, when I decided like, hey, let's give products a try, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to give products a try if I keep track of the income separately because I don't want my successful service business to feed the product business. Like, I don't want to have to keep paying for all the product stuff that I need for my service business. So I kept income and expenses separate. And that was like, it's, I'm only going to do product work if it generates more money and takes me less time. If it generates more money but takes me more time, it's not worth it. Okay. Oh, no, that, no, that's great. Did you know that roughly half of Side Hustle Nation hasn't started their side hustle yet? If that's you, I get it. Starting and building a business is tough. It takes more than just an idea. There are tons of moving parts, and it's a bit like trying to assemble your airplane in the middle of takeoff. Thankfully, our sponsor, Taylor Brands, is helping Side Hustle Show listeners make that leap and make it all a lot easier. Their comprehensive platform guides you through every step, making sure you have everything you need all in one place. Think of it like your behind-the-scenes partner for things like LLC formation, licenses and permits, getting an EIN, setting up your business bank account, bookkeeping and invoicing, insurance, logos, trademark protection, and a lot more. Taylor Brands helps you handle it all seamlessly. And to get you started, Side Hustle Show listeners get 35% off Taylor Brands LLC formation plans when you use our link. That's taylorbrands.com slash side hustle. Taylor Brands, like a tailor for your clothes, T-A-I-L-O-R-B-R-A. A-N-D-S.com slash side hustle. Start your business journey today with the help of Taylor Brands. When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search and hit the ground running with your new hire. But what if you could get rid of the search part and just get matched with qualified candidates? Well, now you can with our sponsor, Indeed. It's simple. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. The matching and hiring platform is trusted by over 3.5 million businesses worldwide to connect with great talent faster. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. For my next hire, I'm using Indeed to tap into a talent pool of 350 million unique monthly visitors. And what else is cool is Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets. 
And how about this? Side Hustle Show listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Just go to Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Do you have a framework for figuring out, you know, answer to what is enough? I think this is always a challenge as entrepreneurs, like, well, business is going good, but it could be better. Like we always have this drive for the next, the next level. You know, I'm going to level up. I'm going to grow to the thing. It sounds like you kind of have a little bit of a different take on that where it's like, no, I'm good. There's kind of two sides to enough. And it's difficult to have empathy for the other side because there's a lot of envy involved. So I think when we start a business, we're in the pre-enough stage because we all start kind of at zero. We need clients or customers or whatever it is. So we need to, we need to grow from zero, from nothing into something. And so we don't have enough yet. So we're like, oh, if somebody's talking about enough, like, uh, what are they talking about? Like, play me the world's smallest violin. But I think that can harm us because in the beginning, we need a growth mindset because we need to grow into enough. But if we never question what enough is and we always just chase more, then we're not going to realize that maybe we've gone past enough. Maybe we're, maybe we're just chasing. It's like running towards the horizon. It's like we feel like we're making progress, like we're sweating. We're running really fast. I, I suck at running. So any running, even light jogging makes me sweat. But I feel like if we don't stop and consider, maybe there's a point of diminishing returns. And so you're asking about frameworks. The framework for me has always been, I work for myself to have more freedom. So I would never want to make a decision that limits my freedom long term. Like I'm okay if it limits my freedom in a little amount of time. Like with the book launch, I've had to do a lot of interviews and a lot of press stuff. And I don't that's draining for me as an introvert. But I know that the the goal of that is I, I wrote something that I'm proud of and I want to get word out about it. So it was worth it for me to spend a few months doing that and then go back to my fortress of solitude and, and make things. <laughs> but like if I made a decision to be a public speaker full-time or to do that full-time, well, that's going to limit my freedom because those aren't things that I like to do all the time. And I think it even comes down to quite simply how I want to spend my day on average or how anybody wants to spend their day. And I think when we start working for ourselves, we have a clear picture of that and then it can get murky because we might be presented with an opportunity and that opportunity could seem great, but that opportunity could take us away from what we want to do. It's like, this is why I don't hire employees because I would never want to spend any part of my day managing other people. I'm awful at managing other people and I don't like managing other people. So it wouldn't make sense if any part of my day was that. Even the the people on my team, I've hired them specifically and they're freelancers, not employees. I've hired them because they don't require management. And I pay them more than the average person in their industry charges because they're the best and they don't need managing. And that to me is like a good use of my day is to like, I'd rather spend a bit more money and get somebody who doesn't, like, I don't need to check in on them. My copy editor, we, we communicate in emojis. I share a file with him on Google Drive and he sends a pencil icon if he's editing it and a thumbs up when he's done. I've never, ta- I've never even talked to him on the phone or on Skype or in real time. <laughs> but he's, like, he's great at what he does. 
And I think that the framework for enough for me is always, how do I want to spend my day? And if I like the way that I'm spending my day now, how would any new decisions alter that in a way I might not like? Even if it means, well, I could make a bit more money, but it's like, if that's diminishing my freedom, is that money worth it? If the money I'm making now easily supports the life that I want to have, it always kind of comes back to what I brought up a little bit earlier. Is what's the, the maintenance or the obligation to saying yes to any sort of growth? And for me, a lot of times, it isn't worth it. I don't want to have an office. My expenses would go up. Like my biggest expense is paying for my email list software. Because not like my business doesn't cost that much to run, really. And I like to keep it that way because I don't have to say yes to Like I don't have to have to have to say yes to work, which feels freeing to me. I can decide like, hey, this is work that I really want to do. This is work that I can provide a lot of value for. This is work that could potentially make a difference. So yeah, I will say yes to this. But it's not like, well, my expenses are so high, like I basically just have to say yes to every single thing that comes my way. That doesn't feel like freedom to me. So I I wouldn't want to put myself in that position. Yeah, because you had, you were in the position of clients beating down your door. You could have built this huge design agency. We said, look, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. I don't want all the stress that comes along with that. You know, never make a decision that limits freedom long term. In uh, one of my mastermind groups, one of the guys is really, really big on that. With every decision that comes across his desk, does this add complexity to my life? And is that complexity going to be worth it? Most of the time, no. But can you can you speak to this because this is common in in the business space? If you're not growing, you're dying. Edward Abbey in 1978 said, growth for the sake of growth is the ideology of a cancer cell. And I always, <laughs> I always just kind of come back to that. Because I think that there's this, this is the dominant paradigm in business, is that if you're not growing, you're dying. If you're not growing, things aren't working out. But I don't think enough people question that. Because my business doesn't grow. The last, it grows maybe like three or four, per, like it grows basically just slightly over inflation which I think is kind of important because then if, if you're making the same amount over a long period of time, you're actually making less because money ends up being worth less. I think that that's kind of important, but I also think that I have enough in my business. I don't need to grow it. And I think it's not even just an ideological thing. For me, it's so nuts and bolts practical. And a good example of that is my mailing list. So in the beginning, I think I had zero people on my list when I started, which is kind of where everybody starts. I think that's probably true. (laughs) And so I needed to grow it. Like I wanted to make a living off of my writing. And so I needed a bit more of an, when I was doing freelance work, I needed 15, 16 clients a year. That was enough. Like that paid my bills. But when I transitioned into products, like I can't sell 15 or 16 books a year unless they were really, really expensive. So I needed, by virtue of the thing that I did, I needed to grow. But my mailing list now is at the size where it generates enough revenue for my business. My mailing list generates all the revenue for my business, pretty much. And so by not having to focus on growth for it, I can spend 100% of my time creating content that my existing audience will like. And I know they'll like it because I spend a great deal of time talking to them. Because the great thing about a mailing list is I send an email to a bunch of people and it comes from my email. Like if they hit reply, it goes to my inbox. And then I can talk to these people. These are people who are paying attention to me. These are the most important people in my business. And I get, I don't know, 150, 250 replies every week. So I send out a weekly email. 
And that to me is the most important, like that guides every product decision I make. That guides every new thing that I start. That guides shutting things down if I'm going to shut them down. Like that guides every part of my business. I don't know how to run a business that's just driven by my own ego and choices I make that I think are right. (laughs) That also seems risky. So because I'm not focused on growth, I can learn so much about my audience. I can spend time getting to know them. When somebody buys something from me outside of my book, which I can't see any data on, but if somebody buys like a course from me or some software from me, probably half the time I recognize their name, their email address, because we probably had a conversation. We probably connected in some way. And like, I like running a business like that. I like that I can know my audience enough to know what they want and build those things. And then they give me money for those things. And that's a win-win. I know you've been doing the, the Sunday Dispatch for forever. What was it like, or what was the most effective way to get more people to pay attention to your writing, to that email? Yeah, I mean, having an opinion is <laughs> super helpful because I think a lot of times, like, we don't want to rock the boat. Like, we want to be, I guess, kind of watered down versions of the opinions that we have because we think that's a safer bet. I don't think it is. I think it's hard to stand out without, and I'm not talking about like being like super opinionated or talking about like abortions or politics or anything like that, but just have an opinion in the, in the expertise that you hold. Well, give, give me an example of that. Minimalism in design. Like when I was a designer, I always talked about why simple was better. As an email marketer, I talk about why simple is better in, in email campaigns. And that's a good one. Even talking about the last email that I sent was about how Facebook is probably the most awful company on the planet right now. <laughs> like, that's me drawing a line in the sand. And I'm sure I lost a couple subscribers for that. But in general, it one, it lines up with my brand. Two, it's authentically how I feel. Three, it's something that I've spent a ton of time researching. And, and four, it lines up with one of the products that I sell, which is a privacy-focused analytics product. I think that it's smart to be opinionated, but I think as business owners, we can't just like bip off about like sports teams or politics willy-nilly, like there's ramifications to it. But if if we have an opinion that's that's well formed and that takes a stand and that maybe even light, like controversial light <laughs> or something, then I think it, it's beneficial because then that shows people like, okay, this is what this person stands for. This is what this brand stands for. That's kind of the way consumer sentiment goes now anyways with purchasing. People want to see what businesses like nobody buys Patagonia for any reason other than the fact that they they love what Yvonne Schrenard has done with his environmental stances, with his political stances, with even the like don't buy this coat campaigns. People buy from businesses now by and large because it lines up with something that they value. Right. So I, th- I think that I- in the beginning, like it was me. Luckily, I'm very opinionated. Like, luckily, there's no shortage of opinion with me. But that was really what drew people initially to, to the writing that I was doing was that I had an opinion on something. It was counter to what most other people were talking about. And I could back it up with logic and fact and studies. And I, I'm such a nerd. So I do lots of research. <laughs> when somebody signs up, is there a like welcome? sequence, onboarding sequence that they get? Or is it just, hey, you'll just get the next Sunday edition when it comes out? No, that's also got me a lot of press and a lot of growth is my welcome. Because it seems silly on the surface, but I do a lot of things in it very, very purposefully. So the first thing is that 
it tells a silly story about how I was so excited that you signed up for my list. And spoiler alert, somebody's going to sign up, but whatever. <laughs> it says that I was so excited that you signed up for my mailing list that I went out and got your name tattooed on my inner left arm. So every time I raise my inner left arm, which is often, I'll remember fondly the day that you signed up for my list. Which, I ha- there's a lot of humor in my writing and a lot of very weird humor in my writing because that's who I am. I'm also covered in tattoos from my neck to my toes. So kind of on brand. I also do things, there's one swear word in it because I sometimes swear in my writing and I would hate for somebody like three years in to feel like I violated the relationship by dropping an F-bomb in there when they weren't expecting it. Okay, so you get that out of the way on the first email. Yeah, a hundred percent. I also talk about, I think I list my three most controversial ideas about business in the email. Like I basically cover all the bases. I list the three things that I disagree with most business advice people on in the first email. And I link to a few of the articles that I've written on those subjects. And so it just, it really gives people a good idea. Like I only want people to be on my mailing list if they want to read this stuff. Otherwise, I'm paying for people to be there that don't want to be there. And I don't like spending money on people that don't want to be there, or don't want to pay attention. So I, I want to weed people out. I want to weed them out right away, too. Because I feel like it's just easier if we both part ways if it's not a good fit. Like I know my writing isn't a good fit for everybody. I know the products that I make aren't a good fit for everybody. I'm not trying to make them good for everybody either. I just want to find the people with the best fit. Yeah, so you'll find... That the people who stick around and stay tuned are are your people, your tribe. Say, hey, this guy gets me. I'm I'm into what he has to say. Exactly. And then after a couple of months, say half of them will buy something, and then half of those people will buy more things. Is that part of the automated sequence? Like, hey, by the way, I have this course. Nope. I think I mentioned my book in the sequence only because one of the three controversial things I talk about is challenging the growth at all costs mindset. So I think I might link to the book, but that's like that's the only automation in my sequence. I mention the other products that I have kind of as they come up, if they relate to an article I've written. But other than that, there's no automation. Everybody gets to send like 33,000 people get the exact same email every single Sunday that I wrote and sent to them. There's no drips past the welcome. You ever worry about, well, I guess you've been doing it for, <laughs> for years and years. You ever worry about not having something to say come Sunday? I should worry about that. You ever skipped a week? No. So I've never, ever, ever missed a Sunday. Except the caveat is that I usually take off American Thanksgiving to New Year's because people's inboxes are flooded with other stuff then. People aren't paying attention. I'd rather just do my own thing. So I do take schedule breaks, but I've started, I think, November 6th, 2012. And I haven't missed a Sunday since other than breaks. And the only reason why I don't miss weeks is because I write far in advance. Like if I just look at my spreadsheet here, I have written up to, holy smokes, so one, two, three, four, five, six. I'm six weeks ahead of my schedule right now. And I'm usually four to six weeks ahead of my schedule because some weeks could be busy. Some weeks could be awful. Somebody could, like it's morbid, but somebody could die and then I'm not going to feel like writing. (laughs) So... And then I'm not stressed out either. I think that for me, at least, my creativity needs space to happen. So I do treat it like a job, like I'll sit down and write, but it's hard. Like if I had to sit down and write on Saturday night, one, it would be awful because my copy editor wouldn't have time to work on it. (laughs) And I need a copy editor, even though I'm a writer for a living, I'm pretty bad at writing. It needs space, so I'm always a month or a month and a half ahead of my schedule because I don't know if I'm going to be able to write something great like the night before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And, and so the course is just as it fits in with the content, it's a plug for the course? Yeah, I mean, I open both my courses twice a year, so... Oh, okay, okay, it's open and shut type of deal. Yeah, so I opened my MailChimp course a couple weeks ago, so I wrote an email about why newsletters are better than social media. And that related to, the, like, I'll try to write some kind of a, my freelancing course that opens up in a few weeks. I have an article about why charge what you're worth is garbage advice. And so like I, I try to write articles. It doesn't always line up like that, but I try to write articles. Go, go back to that for a minute. Say that again. Charge what you're worth is garbage advice. How, why do you think that? <laughs> well, I think that tying our self-worth to the amount that we can earn in a market is dangerous. I feel like I'm worth a quadrillion billion dollars an hour. You probably feel like you are too. <laughs> I think that we can charge what the market will bear. And that has nothing to do, and I don't think that somebody who charges, say, 10 times what you charge is 10 times more valuable as a human being, right? So I think that when we're, when we're thinking about self-worth, if we tie that to an external force, then it's no longer self. We're saying our, our worth is based on the market, and the market doesn't care about our worth. So it becomes, it becomes very dangerous. But again, this is, like a, like this is me taking it, because you were like, wait a second, you paid attention to that thing. And so that, that article is going to get shared for good or for bad. I don't know yet, but it's like that's me taking a stand on something. But that's also me talking about something that relates to the course because in the course, I teach about pricing and how to price and why value based pricing that isn't related to what the market will bear can be really detrimental. So it all kind of like, like it seems like it's all just like, shock jock kind of thing, but it all very much lines up with with a lot of other things and it's strategic even though it's honest. Got it. And in mechanically how this works, is it a straight email or is it also written on a blog? I try to remember to put it on my website. It's mostly Okay. Well because you said okay, people are going to share that. Like I didn't know if that was just forwarding to their friends and stuff. Yeah, no, they share the MailChimp archive page, I guess it's called. The URL that MailChimp generates for every email that goes out, they share that. And then that links to my newsletter if I have conditional content. So if you're on the list, you don't see the plug for the list. But if you're sharing that URL, you see the plug for the list. which is why I teach a course on MailChimp because I know how to do all those fancy things. But, but yeah, Mailchimp has gone fancy now. Yeah, it's super fancy, and that basically it runs my business, and I don't mind that it that it does that. But yeah, so this is another reason why people sign up for the list because it's exclusive content. Every article you get for the list hasn't appeared somewhere else first. Like it goes to my subscribers first, and then if I remember, which I mostly don't, I put it on my website a few days or a few weeks, months later, kind of thing. I'm sure there's a, a Zapier or something <laughs> inside MailChimp that could get that done for you. Oh, there totally is. But I would rather it be exclusive first. Like, there's no Zap that would delay it. At least there probably is. I just haven't looked because it's not as important to me. But I, I like I want my subscribers to feel like they're the most important part of my business because they are. So I want them to get that content first. So I'd rather it go to my list first and then my site later. Sometimes. Do you ever worry like it all comes crashing down? And I think maybe from a personal standpoint, having had some businesses that did well and then stopped doing so well, maybe that's part of my drive to continue to grow things because, well, I got to get it while the getting's good because who knows how long it's going to last. I don't know. Do you ever have those days where you're like, well, shoot, I should sell more or I should make more products or I should 
it's just, it's hard to sit there and be happy with three, 4% growth. Cause it's like, ah, there's so much more I, I could be doing. Yeah, I mean, I I do see that, and I do worry almost every day that things all could come crashing down because that's just my personality is very anxious. But I also know that I've always lived as far under my means as is comfortable. So, like, I save half of what I make, and I, I have for twenty years. So I've built up some savings. So if things go totally wrong, then I would begrudgingly retire, <laughs> which I don't actually want to do, and I would. Yeah, I would have to make some some cuts because I don't have enough to retire yet. I don't actually know what that looks like. I guess if you subscribe to FIRE, then it's 25 times what you need to earn personally. But yeah, like I mean, it could all come crashing down, but I also know that it's a marathon, not a sprint. I could say like, well, if I just write double the emails for a course launch then maybe I could sell 10% more. But then I think, was it worth it to annoy my potential customers twice as much to make a little bit more? And it's not. And I also find that, maybe it's because I've been doing this for so long, that people are going to buy when it's a good time. Like I've had some people who've been on my list for years and then bought one thing and then bought all of the things like the next month. And that's just kind of how it, that's just kind of how it works. And so I definitely would get nervous if I wasn't making enough to cover things for a lot of months in a row. And then I would 100% do whatever it takes to to bring that income back up. But because my business on average has done all right for an average amount of time, I don't know. I I don't think about it that much, even though I do have self-doubt about things. But I also have so many different products (laughs) that if one's not doing well, another one may be doing well, or another one may be like, oh, if I just tweak these few things, then maybe it could do a little bit better kind of thing. Yeah, you're, you're pretty well diversified at this point. Like you said, you've got an enviable savings cushion. That's a good place to be in. Yeah, it took 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. It was just like overnight. Overnight success, 20 years in the yes. making. Well, that's, I mean, that's actually really helpful to, to hear you say it. Yeah, you've been in the game for a long time. And so these opinions come from a place of experience to say, hey, look, been there, done that. Here's what works. Here's what doesn't. And, and here's why I think. So I'm curious, without a focus on growth, what's got you excited for this year? I have no idea. <laughs> I may, I like, I <laughs> sound so like Buddhist, but like, I don't like goals and I don't like plans because I like to leave myself the space to be open to kind of whatever comes up that is interesting or exciting or is like a trend that I see based on what my audience is wanting or talking about. So I have no idea. Like I don't know. Right now I'm working on a new version of my analytics platform, but after that I have no plans other than the month vacation. <laughs> and then when I come back, I need to figure out, like, am I writing another book? Am I working on some software stuff? Am I updating a course? I don't know, man. Like, I just, I just kind of play it by ear and whatever kind of happens. Like, I plan short term because I really like systems and processes, but long term, it's just a guess. Like, I could say, like, oh, yeah, in three months, I, I want to start writing a book. But if I don't feel that book or if I don't have that book in me at that time, then I just feel disappointed. I don't want to feel disappointed. <laughs> so I'd rather just kind of leave it to see what happens and kind of take it from there. Well, no, that's that's your answer. Yeah. So, you know, updating this analytics program, it's, like you said, it's the short-term goals. That's all you can plan for. And then leaving the long-term stuff open to what direction 
it takes. I kind of operate similarly and feel you're one of the first people I've talked to who kind of kind of are speaking my language on this because everybody seems to have like, oh, here's my five-year plan. It's like, <laughs> dude, I, I don't know. They're guesses though. It might be fun to, like it's a fun thought experiment to do that, but it's a guess. It's just like when people plan for rapid growth. You can't just say like, oh, we're going to do 20% month over month growth. It's like, that's a guess. And unless you're Zoltar or have like a crystal ball that works, you're, you're guessing. And I want to run my business based on real things, not guesses. But don't, do you see value in that? Okay, we're going to do 20% month over month growth and then reverse engineering the process, the near-term actions to get there? I guess, but it comes... So you could say like, okay, I want to be like a New York Times bestselling author. And I know that I need to have this many audience and sell this many books and do this many press engagements. But it's also so much, like there's too many moving parts to be able to accurately reverse engineer it. I know people who have sold tens of thousands of books opening week and like Michelle Obama has a new book and like J.K. Rawlings has a new book that week and it just obliterates the charts and like, they, if they had come out a week before or a week after, they would have charted, but otherwise they didn't. So, like, there's just so many variables that it, it just comes back to like we're we're entitled to the labor, not the fruits. The fruits are to make the worst mixed analogy. The fruits are gravy. The fruits are just the icing on the cake. <laughs> like, if everything goes well, it's a delicious analogy. Exactly. I'm really really hungry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll let you go get some food, Paul Jarvis. Again, P J R V S dot com. Check him out. Check out the Sunday. Dispatch, check out Company of One, available on Amazon and wherever else books are sold. Let's wrap this thing up with your number one tip for Side Hustle Nation. Yeah, I think it would probably be that most goals are fake. (laughs) I think that if we set these, if we set goals, we need to have reasons for setting goals. In the beginning, I was like, I want to make a million dollars a year. And that sounds like a good goal, but it wasn't based on, like, I didn't need a million dollars a year. And so I gave it up after working my butt off for just a couple months. So I think if we're setting goals, we need to set goals that realistically accomplish a need that we have instead of just, oh, a legitimate entrepreneur makes a million dollars a year, a legitimate business does like 20% growth in their MRR. So I think that we need to consider if the goals we have are real or fake. Because the the fake ones can end up hurting us. Most goals are fake. Have uh, make sure your goals are grounded in real needs. I think that's powerful stuff, Paul. So thank you for sharing that, and thank you for joining me on the Side Hustle Show. And we'll catch up with you soon. This edition of the Side Hustle Show is brought to you by FreshBooks.com, the cloud accounting solution that's recommended by 97% of small business owners. I was chatting with Rob Eng, who's actually a senior marketing manager at FreshBooks, and he's a FreshBooks customer for his side hustle, which is a sandwich catering business. I thought that was super cool, but Rob shared this story about how every single employee spends their first month on the job answering the phones to learn firsthand about FreshBooks customers and the product. Whether you're, you know, the VP of marketing or you're just a developer, um, you have to do that full month. And we actually can't use it. You're actually a full-time sport rock star. So you have to really empathize to learn about our product, learn about the people that work at FreshBooks, and learn about our customer. It's a big investment we do to really show that even if you don't have a side business, we want you to understand and empathize with our customers. So So when you do your actual job you're hired for, you have the customer in mind. 
Visit freshbooks.com slash side hustle to start your 30 day completely free trial today. That's freshbooks.com slash side hustle for bookkeeping bliss along with rockstar support. If you travel a lot for work or for vacation, you might be familiar with that feeling you get knowing you're leaving your space unused for long periods of time and you're still paying for that privilege. But hosting on Airbnb means you don't have to leave your home sitting empty when you're away. Being an Airbnb host isn't just a way to earn some extra cash. It's a chance to share your space and make a guest's vacation all the more memorable. You might be thinking, eh, maybe my place isn't the right fit, but don't write it off just yet. Your potential Airbnb might be right in front of you. Whether it's a spare room or even your entire home, there's an opportunity waiting. Airbnb turns your home into a practical and even profitable venture. We just got back from a family trip to Hawaii where we stayed in a great Airbnb, but our place back home could have been a highlight to somebody else's travels, and we could have used the extra cash to help pay for the trip. So if you're curious about hosting on Airbnb, find out how much your space could be worth by visiting airbnb.com slash host. Once again, that's airbnb.com slash host. All right, my top three takeaways from this call with Paul. Number one is to have conversations with customers. Paul does this through his Sunday dispatch email list and also through his podcast like we're doing right now. But as he said, those conversations guide the products he creates and earlier on the services that he offered. Just like Abby Ashley was saying last week, you might have an idea of what you could offer, but the smart entrepreneurs let the market decide. What questions do they have? What problems do they have? The responses that I get from my emails and my surveys are incredibly helpful in figuring out what kind of content to create, who to invite on the show, how to structure those episodes. But it starts with conversations, tons of ways to start those conversations. And in Paul's case, it just started with drawing a line in the sand and having an opinion, which helped him attract readers in the first place. So that's takeaway number one, have conversations with customers. Takeaway number two is to consider the ongoing maintenance obligation related to new projects. What if this works out? What am I adding to my plate in order to keep it running? That's one reason the Side Hustle Nation Mastermind Group has been on hold for almost three years now. It required a lot of ongoing maintenance. Paul's comments also have me questioning my Alexa skill experiment. You can check it out, themoneymakingminute.com. It doesn't take a ton of time or money to maintain, and I know it's super early, but for the results, is that a worthwhile trade-off? Where else could I better spend that time? When those shiny objects present themselves, ask yourself, okay, what if this works out? Take the positive side there, but counter it with what's it going to cost to maintain? Consider the ongoing maintenance obligation related to new projects, maybe a potential antidote to shiny object syndrome. Takeaway number three is what's enough? After your basic needs are met, what does an extra five, 10, 50 grand a month mean to you? Does it matter? Sure, all else being equal, you're better off, but are you happier? What did you have to sacrifice to get there? I think that was Paul's big point in this episode, and one that stood out to me was to question growth as the goal. Do you want to run a million-dollar business? Why? To be able to say you run a million-dollar business? Is that a real goal or a fake one? So the concept of enough was an interesting one for me because I'm torn about it, if, if we're being completely honest. What happens if it all falls apart? And on the other side, is enough selfish? I know I could help more people by growing bigger. 
The conversation definitely got me thinking, and hopefully it did for you too. Once again, the notes and links in the full text summary from our conversation are at sidehustlenation.com slash pjrvs. That's it for me. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, let's go out there and make something happen. And I'll catch you in the next edition of the Side Hustle Show, where you'll meet a guy whose side hustle is bringing in 10 grand a month, flipping stuff he usually never sees. I'll see you then. Hustle on.